Thank you, musicians. That's a good one. It's a good one to sing before we get into God's Word. Uh, you can open up to Ephesians 4 this morning. Happy New Year. I'm sure, sure you've been told that before, but uh, I don't know how many of you made uh, some sort of resolution or Maybe you don't like the word resolution, a commitment, whatever it may be for you. Um, maybe if you did, some of you perhaps made a commitment to exercise in the new year. That's one of the most common. Um, people join gyms. They, they promise themselves that they're going to do more to exercise. Um, the thought has crossed my mind that I probably need to do that in the coming year. Um, one of our friends back in Virginia worked for a company that... Uh, would give him a discount on his health insurance if he would walk 10,000 steps a day. And so he would wear a pedometer. Uh, and I assume, you know, he had to prove that he did or whatever, but he'd wear a pedometer on his wrist and, uh, and he would keep track of his steps. And it was hilarious because we would be over at their house sometimes in the evening and he would be, you know, what, 9,000, 8,500, not quite there. And so he would walk up and down the hallway and around their dining room in order to get his remaining 1,000 or 1,500 steps in. So it was pretty funny. And, you know, the last 125 years or so have, we don't even realize it, but the world has changed as we, as related to how we think about even walking in the last 125 years. See, this guy named Henry Ford created this, I don't know if you've heard of him before, but he created this thing called an automobile. And now we don't think about walking the same way we used to. Now walking is something that we do to get a discount on health insurance. It's something that we hop in our car, drive to work, walk to our desk and sit down at our desk or our spot on the stand at our spot on the assembly line. Walking is now something that we need to do to stay healthy. Walking now is something we do in the evening when the weather's nice and take a relaxing stroll outside. But that's not the way, even 125 years ago, that people would have thought about walking. In the, in the New Testament times, in ancient times, when they thought about walking, walking was absolutely necessary. It was how you got anywhere. If you were going to walk to your job or if you were going to get to your job, you had to walk. You were going to go to the marketplace. You couldn't hop in a car. You weren't going to ride a horse. You, you had to walk to get there. In fact, if you were going to go from Jerusalem to Galilee, as we see Jesus and the disciples doing in the New Testament, the only way to do it was to walk. And so we don't really think of walking as an absolutely necessary part of life anymore. In fact, most of us don't average very many steps per day if we get right down to it. And so when we read in the book of Ephesians, the Paul's use of the metaphor, walk, your walk, we tend to think of that differently. And we don't really understand what he's getting at in Ephesians when he uses that metaphor. In that time, walking was an absolutely necessary part of life. Walking was like breathing. It was just something that you had to do. It was normal. It was routine. It was what you did almost all day, every day. You walked. It was the, the basic stuff of life. It was the rhythm of your life during that time. And so hopefully thinking of it that way brings a little more clarity to the metaphor when you read in the book of Ephesians what Paul has to say about walking. 
I mean, turn back to Ephesians 2. We'll get back to chapter 4 in a second, but Paul uses this metaphor throughout the book, and it's really important for understanding the message of the book. Look at chapter 2 and verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. This was the normal way you lived. This was something you did every day. It was natural to you. The rhythm of your life, the routine of your life, was to follow your sinful passions. And then something changed. And look down at chapter 2 and verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. When God gives you mercy and new life, now things have changed and good works are the routine and the rhythm of your life. It's normal for you. It's like breathing for you as a new new creation. Now go to chapter 4 and verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Based on the work of Christ, based on the benefits that you have in him because you're united with him, your normal pattern of living now must match your calling. It must be worthy or suitable to your calling. And in chapters 4 through 6, the second half of this book of Ephesians, the reaction half, if you If you look at the title for our our series through Ephesians, we recall in chapters 1 to 3, and then we react. We act on what we know. And Paul's description of our action in chapters 4 to 6 is built around this metaphor of walking. In fact, he uses this metaphor five times, and he structures the whole second half of the book with this metaphor. And so in chapter 4, verses 1 to 16, he uses the metaphor of walk, and he says, I want you to walk in unity. As believers, when you've been called into the body of Christ, now you exercise your gifts, the diversity of your gifts, you exercise those within the body to promote unity, and you are passionate about unity in the body because of the calling with which you've been called. So I want that to be normal for you. The rhythm of your life as a believer, the routine is to walk in unity. And now in chapter 4, verses 17 to 32, Tyler read it to us this morning. We're going to be in this text this week and next week. Now you're going to see a new command to walk. Now it's a command not only to walk in unity, But now Paul says, look, because of the calling with which you've been called, I want you to walk in holiness. I want you to walk in a unique pattern of life. Unity is not enough. The unity that you have as believers must be built around this walk of holiness. You're all going in the same direction, pursuing the same pattern of life. And that pattern of life is holiness. And that's what he's going to explain in these verses. And so, in verses 17 to 32, we're going to see three features of a walk of holiness. Walk of unity, verses 1 to 16. Now we've got a walk of holiness. Three features of a walk of holiness for those who are in Christ. For those who have received the benefits of being united with Christ. Three features of this walk. The first one of these is in verses 17 to 19. 
What's a walk of holiness look like? First of all, you disown a worldly lifestyle. Look at verse 17. Now, this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. So he's starting a new section here. It's sort of obvious as you're reading it, and it's probably set apart in your Bible anyway as a new paragraph, which is great. He's starting a new section here, but he's picking up on the beginning of chapter four, to walk worthy. That idea sort of pervades all of chapters four to six. You're going to walk worthy of your calling. And now he's telling them, look, it makes sense for you. It's appropriate for you if you've been called by Christ to not walk as the Gentiles do. Now, what does he mean by that? The Gentiles? And it's interesting because if you're thinking about it, I mean, Ephesus, this church, was filled with Gentiles. I mean, these were non-Jews. And so what is he saying to these Gentiles to no longer walk as Gentiles do? That seems kind of odd. Well, these, these believers in Ephesus had spent their entire lives, up until they met Christ, living just like the culture around them, living just like everyone else. The ungodly lives of those around them had influenced them. They had mimicked and copied the ways of life that they had seen, the sinful lifestyle, and the the way of life of those around them had influenced them and their sinful nature had expressed itself and come out and said, yes, this is how I want to live. I want to look like everyone else. And they sort of followed along in the culture of their day. And so what Paul is telling them here is, look, don't live like you used to. Don't go back to the old way of living. You should be set apart. You should be different from your neighbors. You shouldn't look the same. You shouldn't have the same desires and live the same way. So really what he's, what he's telling them when he says, don't walk as the Gentiles, he's telling them this first point, disown a worldly lifestyle. Now, the idea of having God's people live differently from the culture around them is throughout Scripture. I mean, this goes all the way back to the Israelites, As they were standing at the edge of the promised land, getting ready to go in, even as God originally gave them the law, he makes it very clear. One of the reasons I'm giving you this law is so that you will look different. You will be set apart for me, and you will live a different lifestyle. I mean, look what he says to them in Leviticus chapter 20. And you shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I am driving out before you, for they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. He's saying, look, don't have your life look like the nations around you. You need to be different. And that's the whole idea of holiness, right? To be holy is to be set apart. It's to be distinct. There were holy vessels in the temple that were only used for the worship of God. And so we are to be set apart for God's use and his purposes. That's the very definition of holiness. It's to be unique, to be different. And here he's specifically talking about the culture around them, the way of life that is common among people in Ephesus, the Gentiles. 
Ever since the fall in Genesis chapter 3, there has been this entity called the world, right? I mean, if you, if you go forward to 1 John chapter 2, John tells the believers, don't love the world. And what is the world? It's this system of unbelievers, and they're organized together. And it may not be always intentional organization, but in their unbelief and in their sinfulness, they're organized together and they promote and do that which is unrighteous and they make it look normal. They make unrighteousness look normal and they make righteousness and holiness look weird and odd and even wrong at times. That's the world. It's a system. It makes unrighteousness look attractive and normal. And as believers, we are called to buck against that system and not to love that system and not to go along with that system. We're called to be holy. Here's the way one author said it. I love this. Christians were never meant to be normal. Sorry. We've always been holy troublemakers. We've always been creators of uncertainty, agents of a dimension that's incompatible with the status quo. We do not accept the world as it is, but we insist on the world becoming the way that God wants it to be. And the kingdom of God is different from the patterns of this world. And that's exactly what Paul is telling the Ephesians here. Don't walk as the Gentiles do. The patterns of this world that he's talking about is the walk of the Gentiles. It's the lifestyle of unbelievers. And here in verses 17 to 19 in Ephesians 4, Paul's going to tell us exactly what that lifestyle looks like. So you're going to get a front row seat at what he means by the walk of worldliness here. And it's interesting, as he explains this way of life, he does it in very unflattering terms. Right? His goal here is to show you the emptiness of this system, of this way of living. Paul, I think, would say, look, to live like this is nuts. It doesn't make sense. I want to make this look horrible to you so that you don't desire it anymore. He's going to describe this lifestyle of unbelievers, and he's describing it to these believers, and he's going to focus on three areas in verses 17 and 19, okay? He's going to focus on their thinking, the way unbelievers think. He's going to focus on their relationship with God. How do they relate to God? And then finally, he's going to focus on their motivations and actions all together. So what drives them and what do they do? So their thinking, their relationship to God, and then their, their actions and what drives those actions. So first of all, let's look at the end of verse 17. I'll just read the whole of verse 17 again. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Futility, what he means by that is their thinking, their process of reasoning cannot accomplish its goal. It's futile. They never get what they're going after. They want satisfaction, 
and they try to conceive all of these ways of pursuing satisfaction, but they cannot reach it. And it's futile. Why? Look at the beginning of verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding. It doesn't mean that unbelievers don't know anything. They don't have any knowledge at all. Some have very helpful things to say and contributions. But here, what he means is they cannot come to the right moral conclusions. They don't have a foundation for morality, and they cannot understand fully right from wrong and why you do this instead of this and why you live this way instead of this way. I heard about a study not long ago that this research study showed that children actually do better emotionally if they're raised in a home that believes there's a God. Uh, and, you know, it, it was a, a study that happened, a survey that they did, and they came to this conclusion. And so uh, the person that, that was reporting on this study was not a believer. And so she was going through the study, and she saw this, but she doesn't believe in God. And so there's this empirical evidence that people do better, children do better emotionally if they believe there's a higher power, they believe in a God, and she doesn't believe in a God. So what's she supposed to do with this study, right? And so her conclusion was that the best way for parents to handle this information and this report was to lie to their kids and to tell them that there really is a God, even if the parent doesn't believe in God. That is a darkened understanding, right? There's no moral, there's no ability to reason to the right conclusion there because it's based in the futility of their minds. It's based in darkness. There's no moral foundation on which to make decisions, and when that is the case, things go awry very, very quickly. So Paul says, don't be like this if you're in Christ. So that's the first part of this lifestyle that he addresses their thinking. The second is the way they relate to God. Look at the rest of verse 18. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. True life comes from God. He's the creator and sustainer of life, and he explains to us how to live and to live well, and he gives us eternal life, and worldly Gentiles are cut off from that life. Why? Well, he says here it's due to their ignorance. And when you hear that, it's due to their ignorance, keep in mind that ignorance is not does not always come from a lack of availability of knowledge. You can be ignorant sometimes because you've just never been made aware. But sometimes ignorance is purposeful and intentional. And you don't want to know. And you don't want to reckon with that reality because of the implications of that reality. You can choose to remain ignorant of certain realities. That's what Paul's talking about here. And he uses the same line of reasoning in Romans 1. Let me show you this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. 
How? For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. You just look around you and it is obvious that there is a powerful God who has created this. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. They're cut off from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because they've suppressed the truth, pushed it away, and look how he ends, verse 18, due to their hardness of heart. They stiffen their hearts against God. That's the real basis for ignorance, and that's the real basis for alienation. They don't want to reckon with this God. They don't want to reckon with Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's done. So they push it aside, and they make up arguments that support their way of thinking. The third area that Paul focuses on is their their actions and their their motivations. What's going on inside of them that ends up creating a lifestyle? This is in verse 19. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. You all know what it means to get a callus on your skin. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but if you play the guitar on a regular basis, probably this is the case for the bass too, you get calluses on the tips of your finger from pressing down on those steel strings over and over again. And actually, in this case, is a very helpful thing because you can play the guitar without pain as you're pressing down on those steel strings. But the point is, a callus thickens your skin and creates insensitivity to feeling in the tips of your finger or wherever you get get the callus. You lose the sensation of the feeling in your skin. And so Paul here is describing worldly people as being callous. They've lost the sensation of embarrassment over their sin. They don't care anymore what God thinks or that they are accountable to him. They stop caring what God thinks, and even to some extent what other people think. And because of their callousness, verse 19, they have given themselves up to sensuality, to moral impurity. So they don't feel responsible to God, and therefore immorality of every different kind comes easier and easier. And you sort of get the picture here of someone who gets in a a kayak and just sort of floats with the current down the river. They just sort of lay back and give themselves up to it and accept that this is the way I am and this is the way it's going to be. But it's interesting is even as they become callous and insensitive to embarrassment before God, they don't become callous in their desires. In fact, their desires only increase for sin. Look at the rest of verse 19. They are greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And it sort of builds on itself. And the sin gets deeper and deeper. And the selfishness becomes more and more pronounced. They want more and more. And they're not satisfied with it. That's the picture of a worldly person. And that is the type of walk, lifestyle, that believers must reject. We don't want anymore. 
And it, it's so easy, let's be honest, it's so easy to get sucked into this. Maybe not across the board if you're a believer, but it's so easy to sort of fall back into this way of living in certain areas at certain times. And it's easy to get pulled along by the, the inertia of the culture and just sort of accept it and go along with it in certain areas and it grows and becomes bigger and bigger. But that is not an option for a believer. We don't walk that way anymore. And that leads us to our second feature of a walk of holiness. Disown a worldly lifestyle and devote yourself to Christ. Our calling as believers leads us to something that is significantly different than this. And that's why Paul paints this in such stark terms, such repulsive terms. I mean, who wants to live like this? I hope you don't. But our lives should be much different. Look at verse 20. But that is not the way you learned Christ. When he uses the word learned here, that's the, the same root in Greek as the word for disciple. It's, it's basically the same idea here. So he's not talking about learning Christ in some sort of abstract classroom knowledge that's disconnected from everyday life. What he's actually talking about here is learning Christ as a follower, as a disciple of Christ. He's talking about a personal discipleship relationship with Jesus Christ. And so when you have this discipleship relationship with Christ, you are following him, you are walking behind him differently, in a different direction. And he's confident that they've learned Christ in this way. Look at verse 21. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Discipleship involves two things. It involves hearing about Jesus and it involves being instructed by him, taught by him. That's exactly what the disciples did during Jesus's earthly ministry, isn't it? They heard about him, they heard from him, and they were instructed, they were taught by him about how to live and about his work and about his ministry. And so for the believer, for you and I, all of life is different because we hear about Jesus and we are instructed by him. And we have a relationship with him where life begins to make sense and we start to see reality and the world in a different way. And every aspect of life has a new shade on it. Our marriage, our work, our children, the culture, all of it looks different now. Why? The end of verse 21, because the truth is in Jesus the truth is not in the way the world tells us to live and find the good life. The truth is in Jesus. We see everything now through him. He is the light. Everything comes to the forefront. God's plan of redemption, we see clearly through Jesus. Our need of redemption, the reason that we fall into the patterns of life of verses 17 to 19 becomes clear because we need a savior. We need forgiveness of our sins. And that becomes clear in the Lord Jesus Christ. The future of the human race, of the world, God's purposes for all mankind and the universe becomes clear. 
in Jesus Christ. The truth about reality is found in him. And so as we are instructed in him, we make sense of things because the truth is found in him. The path to true human flourishing and well-being is found in him. The truth is in him. So we've learned Christ and we want to be disciples of Christ, but what does that actually mean in daily life? What does this look like? What exactly do we learn from Christ? This is what Paul gives us in verses 22 to 24, and this is what it means to devote yourself to Christ. I don't want this to be some abstract concept of devotion to Jesus. It's very concrete and very earthy and very resolutions in 2020, day-to-day life, right? And that's what he gives us in verses 22 to 24. And let me read this to you, the whole thing, and then we'll go back and explain it. Here's what you're taught. Two, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So there are three parts to this, and I think you can probably see them pretty clearly. Put off, renew, put on. Put off, renew, put on. To learn Christ is to put off, to renew, and to put on. Now, let me explain. The first and the last of those, to put off and to put on, the way that these are written, and it's really important for you to understand this, the way these are written is that these are events that have already happened to you in one sense. I know there's some day-to-day reality of continuing to mortify the old man and continuing to grow in virtues and habits, and that's absolutely true. But the way these are written here says, this actually happened to you at the moment of conversion. When you were saved, you died to this former way of life, this pattern of living that defines worldly people. This is who you used to be. There certainly is an ongoing struggle, but the objective reality of the situation is you died to this, now you're alive to this. You have put this on. You are a new creation. This is your status now. I mean, couldn't be any clearer than in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You can even see in verse 22, this old self belongs to your former manner of life. This is who you used to be. And this former manner of life, as you gave in to these desires, grows more and more corrupt. And these desires are deceitful. They're promising you satisfaction and joy and the good life, and they're lying to you. This is not how you're supposed to live. This is not how you should be. You can see in verse 24 then, the opposite side of this is you have put on the new self. You have been objectively united with Christ. In Ephesians 2, you are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. His life is your life. God views you as he views him. 
That is reality now. And so God intends you to look more and more like him now because of that. Verse 24, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So instead of giving in to those deceitful desires, your passion now is to look like God in two areas, righteousness and holiness. Righteousness is dealing justly with other people, and holiness is your relationship being set apart for God and for interaction with him and his purposes. And so both of those, in one sense, have objectively happened to you this morning. And that's a key part of your sanctification, is coming to grips with that reality. I have died to this way of living. I now have put on the Lord Jesus Christ and the new self. And if, if that's true, though, how do we actually grow to where our lifestyle, our walk, matches that reality? What, what brings us more and more to look like God and to look like the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, the answer to that is found in verse 23. And this is what Paul is teaching us in chapters 4 to 6. This is a summary of everything he's giving us in chapters 4 to 6. Look at verse 23. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Here is the key. Here's the centerpiece. Here is how your walk matches your position. This is it. To be renewed. The way this is written in Greek is that this is an ongoing process. It's not something that's happened in the past or necessarily in the future. This is something that is happening to you all the time. To be renewed is to be made new, and it's to be made better. Typically, I think we typically think of renewal as something like renewing your driver's license. It's something you, you do at one moment or one point in time. You renew a book at the library. But here, Paul is saying, this is something you're doing that is a process. It's ongoing. It's something you're practicing. And this process is taking place inside of you. Look again at verse 23. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Your innermost being, your thoughts, your desires are being changed. It's a process of those being made new. You no longer think and love the way you did in verses 17 to 19. Now you think and love in a whole different way, in a different capacity. So what does that process look like? It sounds pretty important. What does it mean to renew? Well, one theologian called renewal the process of mental deduction. And what does that mean? Mental deduction. So what that means is you take a truth about Christ, a theological truth, and you think about that truth and think, okay, I deduce from that truth that I am supposed to live this way, and I'm supposed to love this way, and I'm supposed to feel this way. And so you're taking these realities that are given to us, for example, in Ephesians 1 to 3, and you're taking those and you're thinking about them and deducing from those new ways of living and loving and being. And so this would mean I am reminding myself over and over again that I've put off the old man, that I am no longer this person in verses 17 to 19. Instead, 
I have put on the new man, which is created to be like God. And so I'm thinking about that, and then I'm saying, okay, what are the implications of that reality for the way I live this coming week? That's mental deductions, and it's a process, and it's work. There is no way around it. It's hard to do, but it's important to do. And, you know, I think we, we tend to view mental work, thinking, as something that is sort of set aside for teachers, for professors, for maybe even pastors. This is something they do. They think. They use their brains to think about theology and think about even applications of theology. But Paul would say here, look, this process of renewal is so vital to your Christian life that you have to give yourself to this to put on these realities. Thinking is not just for pastors. It's not just for teachers. Thinking, renewing your mind with the truths of Christ is necessary for your walk, for your walk of holiness. And so you you take the truths that are given to us in Ephesians 1 to 3 and you go, okay, if this is true, then this. If this is reality, then this. And you work from those truths to daily life. If I am an adopted child of God, then I am free from condemnation. And nobody can condemn me, not even myself. If God is working all events in the universe toward his purposes, then I do not need to sit in anxiety for the year 2020 and worry about everything. If I have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit and he is at work inside of me, then he will work to change me and I will be a different person in January of 2021 than I am today. But most of us don't engage in this process of mental deduction, of renewal of our minds. We sort of just think it's going to happen to us without doing the Holy Spirit-driven effort to make this happen in our lives. And so let me just encourage you to begin the new year by giving yourself to this process of renewal. This is what Paul describes in Romans 12, 1 and 2. It's by the renewal of your mind that you're not conformed to this world. But keep in mind that renewal is a process, right? You're not going to nail it all down this coming week and come back next Sunday and have gotten it. It's not the way it works. It's not something you do for a couple days and then move away from it. This is a habit. This is a routine. This is a pattern of living. I think you could say this is a walk. It's like my friend trying to get his 10,000 steps a day. He was intent on that. He wanted to do it. And he made sure that it happened every day. Except this habit, this walk, is not something where you get a discount on health insurance. This Walk, this habit, this routine, this way of living brings about a new you. You begin to reflect the reality of who you are in Jesus Christ. 
as you give yourself to this. You put off the old man more and more, and you put on the new. And everything is different when that happens. So I'd encourage you to to give yourself to this in the new year. Make this a point of emphasis and see what God does in you as you follow his commands here. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your word, and we're so thankful that the Bible renews our ways of thinking, that we have been freed from enslavement to passions and desires. We've been liberated from self-centered paths of living, and we've been set on a course of discipleship in a personal relationship with you, and now we can walk in new life. And that happens as we submit ourselves to the process of renewal of the mind, as we recalibrate our thinking day in and day out, and we adjust, and we work at it. And we work at it not to earn favor with you, but we work at it because we love you and we're responding to what you have done for us. And we want nothing more than to be like you. So please create those desires in us and give us the the fortitude to make it happen this coming week. Thank you for all you've done in Christ's name, amen.